Today's reading is Luke chapter 7, uh, starting reading at verse 36. Now one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, so he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. When a woman who lived a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster jar of perfume and stood behind him at his feet, weeping. She began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee, who had invited him, saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him, and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two men owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii, and the other 50 Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he cancelled the debts of both. Now which of them will, will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt cancelled. You've judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he, had, then he turned towards the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she has loved much. But he who has been forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. It's uh, good to add my welcome to you all as well. Great to see you. And it's good to be in here. I know the last time we did this, uh, a number of you said how good it was to be in this building and not the other one. But we are planning to go back next week. Don't be uh, worried about that. Uh, it's, um, if you are here for the first time, uh, we are starting, uh, we are continuing with part two of what, God willing, will be a six-part series Uh, considering Jesus' teaching uh, on these uh, very modern preoccupations of gender and sexuality. I rushed over here this morning and uh, managed to uh, come out without my belt on. And uh, I was slightly nervous about what that might mean. And uh, I was very grateful that one of my daughters uh, brought it uh, over. But then I was reflecting on that, not only with a certain sense of relief, but also, of course, uh, God's word describes the belt of truth holds everything together. So let's pray that we would know uh, God's belt of truth uh, holding us together uh, this morning. Father, thank you that your word is true uh, and thank you that it holds everything in place. It teaches us uh, the good way uh, where we may find in you uh, all of your grace and kindness, all of your faithfulness, uh, all of your goodness. So please, Lord, would you open our hearts, uh, teach us today, uh, and as we ask these questions, both for ourselves as sinners And as we seek to be your witnesses in the world, uh, please may we bring your gospel unchanged, powerful to save. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, So you've already seen all the slides, so maybe I don't need to carry on. But uh, there we go. Uh, As uh, last week, that's the same as as last week's uh, slide, we will have a question time uh, after this uh, service. Uh, Thank you for those who stayed last week. We had a good little discussion uh, today because we're in this building 
Uh, I'm going to suggest that we move, um, uh, that we gather at the front here, those who want us, uh, or just outside in the in the hallway, uh, when we've got a cup of coffee, five or ten minutes after the end of the service, we'll see how big the group is, uh, the group is and we'll find a room of the right size. Uh, so if you want to ask questions, you can do it on Slido, you can do it in person, uh, but just gather out there through the doors with a cup of coffee and we'll go and find somewhere quieter to continue the conversation if you would like to do that. Uh, if you do have uh, Luke 7 uh, on a device, uh, then you may find it helpful uh, to have that open. We're going to start uh, here today uh, in the passage uh, that uh, Will just read out for us. Uh, here we have uh, the story of Simon and the sinner and the saviour. And unlike some of the encounters that Jesus had uh, with people, and particularly with Pharisees, with the uh, teachers of the law and the members of the uh, religious establishment, Unlike many of those, this doesn't appear to be one where Simon, the Pharisee, is trying to trip Jesus up. Many of these encounters, uh, they try to trap him uh, with their words. Uh, So it seems actually that uh, Simon is something of a seeker. Uh, He, uh, like uh, one or two others in the gospel accounts, uh, though coming from that privileged and powerful place in the establishment, uh, has enough about them to realize that this man is worth investigating further. So it does seem that Simon doesn't start with poor motives. He's coming to seek. He'll be very surprised as the conversation carries on. And we don't know, as with so many of the gospel characters, what the impact was on him afterwards as he reflected on this. We know, for instance, with someone like Nicodemus, who had a, another conversation with Jesus, that he reappears quietly. Clearly God's word having done its work on him as he appears uh, to tend the body of Jesus after his crucifixion. Maybe Simon had a similar experience as he reflected on Jesus' words. Well, we'll, she'll discover one day uh, when we get to heaven. But if you're here as a seeker, if you're here as someone who's not yet sure about this uh, message of Christianity, maybe you're here for the first time, uh, you've come in an unusual week because of the building, because of the series, but if you've come as a seeker, then you will find if you come with an honest and humble heart. We were considering that last week as we started. Uh, The questions uh, we bring to Jesus, there are no wrong questions, but there is a right heart, a heart that is ready to be taught, a heart that is ready to receive, a heart, a mind that is ready to learn. So Simon uh, comes as a seeker, uh, and uh, he's invited Jesus to uh, a generous semi-public meal uh, to find out more about this new uh, Jewish leader and teacher uh, who has taken uh, people by storm. Uh, the, uh, apparently, uh, this was not an unusual thing. Uh, a prominent uh, and wealthy man like this, uh, when he had a banquet in his house, it wouldn't have been like us. We have the guest list, we shut the door, and uh, nobody else is likely to find their way in. Uh, these meals, uh, it wasn't unusual for them have a bit of a fringe, people listening in through the windows. Uh, and so the appearance of the woman is not as surprising uh, in that con- uh, context as it would be if it happened uh, in our house. Uh, well, then we have the woman. Uh, the woman, in spite of uh, long misidentification, is not Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene is introduced at the beginning of the next chapter. We don't know her name. In fact, we know nothing about her beyond what is revealed in this story. What we do know about her is that she had lived a sinful life in that town. Everyone knew that she was a flagrantly sinful woman. 
And though the nature of her sin is not uh, explained, almost certainly that sin was sexual, and probably she was indeed a prostitute. Or if not a prostitute, uh, someone who was notorious uh, for her level of sexual sin and depravity. And she comes in to this meal, uh, and rather than just listening on the edges, uh, and, and the meal would have been around a, a table that would have lain on the floor at feet outwards like spokes on a wheel. And so she approaches the edge uh, of the, uh, the gathered men around the meal, and she just begins quietly weeping. And as she does so, her tears wet Jesus' feet. And she begins to kiss his feet and to anoint them with a perfume. Just imagine the, as the smell of that perfume begins to fill the room. Everyone knew what she was doing after a little while. And of course, then all the eyes turned from her to Jesus. How would he respond? Well, Simon, uh, the Pharisee, says to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know what sort of woman is touching him. In other words, if he's really a righteous and good man, he would have uh, flung her away, had nothing to do uh, with her touch of him. It's ironic, isn't it? Simon says, I don't even think Jesus is a prophet. And yet what Jesus does next is he answers Simon's thoughts. Notice that. Simon doesn't say anything. But Jesus reads his mind. He's rather more than a prophet uh, here. Uh, and as he responds, as he does, that must have shocked Simon. He was one uh, who he, a moment ago, thought wasn't a prophet. Now he's read his mind, and he goes on to answer the question that comes. And Jesus tells the parable of the money lender. Uh, two men owe a, a man a certain amount of money, one ten times as much as the other, and both debts are cancelled. Well, the context here is sin. This woman is a sinful person. And so Jesus tells a story equating, therefore, sin with debt. And he, uh, in this parable, he, or as it were, God, but then he is God with us, is that moneylender. And the moneylender exercises grace, love, uh, cancels the debts, uh, forgives the sins of both. Uh, and uh, the greater grace, the greater love, leads to a responsive greater love. The greater grace of the moneylender leads to the greater love of the one who is forgiven more. And so it's a convicting contrast. Jesus goes on to draw. Uh, he says to Simon, well, thank you for the meal, but you didn't even show the basic hospitality common to our culture. I came into your house. You gave me no water to wash my feet, no kiss on the cheeks, no anointing of my head with oil. Well, this woman has done all of that and done it in a way that is lavish and heartfelt and costly and grateful. All of the objects, the, the, the tears, the kissing, the anointing, are for Jesus' feet. Now, here is humble, grateful love for him. Oh, therefore, uh, Jesus says. And, and notice that uh, what he then goes on to say follows the parable. Uh, the woman is not forgiven because she has loved. The parable comes first. She loves because she has been forgiven. Uh, so I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven. For she loved much. There's the evidence that this woman knows what it is to be forgiven. But he who has been forgiven little loves little. So the question is asked, 
Who is this who even forgives sins? Who can forgive sins but God alone? As the question is more explicitly put in a similar encounter, well, indeed, no one can forgive sins but God alone. That tells you all you need to know about Jesus. He reads our hearts. He sees our sins. He holds out his forgiveness. And as we receive it in faith, so we hear these words. Your sins are forgiven. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Isn't it a beautiful story? I think it's one of the loveliest stories ever told about Jesus. And it's true. And it's powerful. Because it means that for sexual sinners like me and like you, there is a God who sees what we are like and who loves us and forgives us and who calls us to respond in costly, sacrificial, joyful love in return. She's the paradigm. If you hear nothing else beyond what I say today, I'd love you just to go and reflect on this story and your part, your place in it for yourself. But we will continue. So last week, uh, we we saw that we have many questions. We come to Jesus for answers. We're listening uh, to his word that we might obey it. Today, as we've already begun to see, I want us to see from Scripture and with God's spirit writing this on our heart, that sexual sin is real and condemning. I don't avoid sin or pretend it's something small, even though that is what our culture would like us to do. But Jesus' grace is greater than our sin and reaches beyond it and around it and forgives all. And that grace is transforming. Remember another encounter where Jesus engages in conversation, the woman who has been taken in adultery. And on that occasion, they were trying to trip him and they want to say, um, we should stone this woman for her adultery. And Jesus says, do you remember you who have, uh, no, uh, you have no sin cast the first stone? And as they go away, so at the end of the conversation, Jesus says to the woman, like here, neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. So the gospel convicts us. It leads us to know forgiveness in Christ. And then it transforms us. And we are led on to live a life uh, of repentance as well as faith. So let's uh, dwell for a little while on uh, this first and uncomfortable point uh, where I deliberately um, uh, chose the title of this second sermon, Jesus and Sexual Sinners Like Me. I don't by that mean to say like me because I'm far worse than any of you uh, uh, putative Pharisees amongst you. I mean Jesus and Sexual Sinners Like Me and You. And if there is anybody who wants to come away from this service today and say, well, it's great that there was a message about all those people out there who are sexual sinners. Clearly, it doesn't apply to me. Well, then you haven't listened to either Jesus or what the Spirit is saying today. God's word convicts us. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all of us have sinned in all the areas of our lives, including sinning sexually. The good news, always the good news, we need to hear straight away, we're justified freely by God's grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ, that redemption that we'll remember today when we take the bread and wine, that take us straight back to the cross where the price was paid. You see, when David confesses his very famous and public adultery, he's like this woman, everyone knows he's a sexual sinner. When he prays in Psalm 51, he goes deeper and further back. It wasn't just the incident with Bathsheba. No, he says, surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother 
conceived me. So friends, beware confidence in your own righteousness. It may be that we are not spectacular sinners uh, in this regard. That does not mean that we are not sinners and that we too need the grace, the renewing grace of God. Uh, Paul says this to Timothy, that the sins of some men are obvious, uh, reaching the place of judgment ahead of them. The sins of others trail behind them. It's like that with sexual sins. Some people, it's really obvious. Other people, much less so. Consider uh, some people who might arrive at St. John's. You see, the unmarried pregnant woman's sin is probably obvious, although we may not know the circumstances in which she became pregnant. But sex outside of marriage is sin. She's not married. She's pregnant. Not that complicated to draw the conclusion. Now, what about the man who has porn adult, who has spent hours before he's come to church, locked into a habit that he cannot shake? He appears respectable outwardly. No one would think any sinful thoughts entered his mind. Or again, uh, the outwardly respectable appearance of a married couple might cloak all sorts of selfishness and sin, not least in the sexual arena. The gay couple who come here for the first time might be here because they're sensing the Lord beginning to work in their lives and calling them to discover something of his grace. For themselves, our first impressions, our outward conclusions from what we see, may be very far adrift, and not just of others, but of ourselves. Consider Jesus' most famous moral teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. Often you'll hear non-Christians saying, what a wonderful piece of moral teaching this is. If only we lived by the Sermon on the Mount, how good the world would be. You know, when Jesus goes through in the first main part of the Sermon on the Mount, He has a series of contrasts. You've heard it was said, it was written in the Old Testament law, but I say to you, and he's not contradicting the law, he's going to its deeper purposes. He's looking at the intensification, the heart implications of the law that uh, in many times looked at the outward appearance. And two of the six ethical intensifications of the law are around sex and sexual morality. Do you think you're not a sexual sinner? Well, hear Jesus, I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. You still think you're not a sinner? Well, perhaps you don't know your heart very well, or maybe it stopped beating. I think that's the only reason this wouldn't convict you. Or again, he goes on to say, anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness causes her to become an adulteress. Anyone who marries the divorced woman commits adultery. It's hard to hear, isn't it? And yet that's what Jesus says in this top uh, part, as it were, the most famous part of his moral teaching. Are any of us without sin? Any of us looking to cast the first stone? It's not that godliness is impossible. Uh, Job, righteous Job, made a covenant with his eyes not to look lustfully at a girl. Godliness is possible, but it's hard, and we learn it after many Failures, if we learn it at all. It's not that godliness is impossible, but that sin is universal. But why? Well, again, listen to Jesus. For from within, out of men's hearts, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and make a man unclean. Three of that list are sexual sins. 
Sexual immorality is the Greek word pornea, from which we get the fairly obvious word. Uh, adultery is adultery. Uh, lewdness, uh, the old translation had lasciviousness. Uh, it's this idea of indulging uh, in um, sexual thoughts and uh, the frivolous sexualization of our culture has lewdness all around it, uh, around us. And it's not just around us, it's in us because it comes from our hearts. So as we approach these questions of gender and sexuality, remember who is the one who hears the words, your sins are forgiven, your faith has saved you, go in peace. It's not Simon, the righteous, church-going, apparently respectable man. Does he hear those words eventually as he reflects on his own heart and his own sin and come broken to cry to Jesus for forgiveness? I hope so, but we don't know. What we do know in that story is that the one who was very obviously a sinner discovers a magnificence of grace and that we too as sinners may discover that same grace and we too as we trust in Christ may go in peace. But friends it's so important on these subjects of gender and sexuality Uh, you are never going to hear me God forbid you would hear me say, and I hope none of you are waiting for the moment when we finally get over all this introduction stuff, and then Mike will just say those wicked people outside the church for doing all those awful things. Thank you, Lord, that we're not like them. If I say that, please sack me. Actually, you can't, but ask the bishop, and uh, he'll have a word. I'm drawn again and again to the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Maybe you're familiar with it. You see, there was a man. He goes to the religious gathering and says, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. Thank you that I'm not an adulterer. I'm certainly not like this tax collector. The tax collector, the adulterer, the man who knows the sins, the sexual sins of his own heart. They convict him still, even from years in the past. He falls on his face before God and says, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And that man, Jesus says, not the other, went home justified before God. Are you a sexual sinner? You're in good company and you're ready to hear the gospel of grace. Do you say, no, it's not me. I'm a righteous and respectable man. Well, then you will go home not justified before God. No matter how much you go to church, how much communion to take, how much Bible you read, there will be no peace with God for you. And that means, as we approach these questions, asked so angrily in our culture and often asked of the church, uh, in a sense expecting that we will just judge people. And there is that in our own hearts. There is that in our past. Well, what do we do? We don't go along with our culture and say, these things don't matter. Live how you please. We have modern insights. Ditch the Bible. And we will not be those who deny and minimize the reality of sin as though God's word had changed. But neither will we be those who cast stones or sit in judgment as though we ourselves were without sin. Instead, we have a better story to tell. My sins deserve the judgment of hell. My sexual sins deserve hell but my savior forgave me i cried out to him for mercy and he said to me your sins are forgiven your faith has saved you go in peace can you see how when we have this attitude it will radically change the way we approach these things 
when a colleague asks us or the conversation comes up yet again in RSC in our school lesson or we wonder how to respond uh, to the presenting issue that's before us amongst our friends or in our family. This is the mindset that we must have as we ask our questions. We will get to the difficult questions. We will. We've got another four weeks. It's so important that we take these first two weeks to come in the right spirit and the right heart, a renewed and humbled heart. So uh, more briefly, uh, I want to go uh, through with you at some speed uh, some of the New Testament passages that begin to explore the question of what it looks like to go in peace. This is where we'll just begin to ask the question, what would this sinful woman's life have looked like had she gone on to join the church? Yes, forgiven, go in peace. Or in Jesus' words to that other uh, woman in John 8, uh, what does it look like to go and sin no more? It's a lot richer than just stopping doing certain particularly obvious things. In fact, it's about God radically rewiring our hearts, renewing our minds, and giving us a new vocation as we use our bodies, our minds, and our words. So, four things. God's grace transforms us by teaching us that we have a calling from God, a battle to fight, a teacher to train us, and a remedy when we fall, as we will. We will not achieve sinless perfection in this life. Some have claimed that through the history of the church, uh, but it is a false doctrine. We will continue to wrestle with sin and need the ongoing forgiveness of God until the day when we see him face to face. So let's go through four New Testament passages that answer these questions. How does God's grace transform us? Uh, we have a calling from God. Uh, this is in 1 Thessalonians 4. And I should say as well, uh, not only are these um, talks, of course, going to be on the YouTube channel, as they always are. Uh, today may be slightly different because of being in here. Uh, but also, I'm very happy to make these slides. That's why I've done them in some detail. I'm uh, very happy to make them available to you so you don't have to write down notes. Uh, but if you want to follow up these uh, references later uh, in your own uh, delving into God's word, uh, then we will make those uh, available for you to do so. Uh, so Paul is writing to the Thessalonian Christians. Uh, Thessalonian Christians are wrestling with questions of sexual immorality, amongst other things, because there's nothing new. Uh, and uh, Paul says to them, as he turns to the ethical uh, application in that letter, it is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality. And we've been forgiven uh, by Jesus Christ. Uh, we're not then released to go back and live the life we used to live. Uh, we have a calling from God. It is the will of God that we live a sexually pure life. Verse 7, uh, God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. And that will be in contrast to our neighbors. We will not make the same moral and ethical choices as our unchristian neighbors, our non-Christian neighbors uh, around us. Uh, and that will put us uh, at war with our own instinct and in a very small minority in our culture, just as it was uh, in the sex-saturated culture of the Greco-Roman world into which the New Testament was written and where these ethical applications uh, seem relevant to us in a way that, frankly, sometimes the Victorians may have wondered if it was so needful to write so boldly. Well, it is, because the heart hasn't changed, and we live in an era that is much more like the first century than the 19th. Anyway, uh, the heathen around us, uh, they're getting on with their passionate lust. Uh, a third of the traffic on the internet is that passionate lust. And there are plenty of people around us doing that. Uh, and why do they do that? Notice what Paul says, because they do not know God. It's not that they're more sinful than we are. 
but they have not met Jesus Christ and been transformed by him. And so they carry on indulging their sinful uh, nature and desires without any sense of wanting to stop. We are not to live like that. You see, we get to here via where we've traveled, not so that we can say, look at those wicked people, but so that we can say, I know God, and God has given me a calling not to live like this. And so, yes, I am making different choices to you, my non-Christian friend, not because I want to condemn you or because I think I'm better than you, but because I've come to know the grace of Jesus, and he's called me to live a new and different way. And if we think, as many seem to do, even in the professing churches, that we can just live as our culture does in order to attract people in to a church that then has no gospel to share with them. Anyway, I can't understand the bankruptcy of uh, liberal Christianity, but let's be clear that if we do that, if we say, well, let's just rearrange the sexual morality of the church to match the culture, well, then look at what Paul says. He who rejects this instruction does not reject man, but God who gives you his Holy Spirit. Church of England, General Synod, you want to redefine what is acceptable in these areas of gender and sexuality. You're not fighting the conservatives. You're fighting the Holy Spirit. You're fighting God and giving evidence that you don't really know him at all. We need to speak that prophetic word in the church, just as we need to bring the gospel of grace to those outside. For the reality is that God will judge sexual and all sins. The Lord will punish men for all such sins. Paul says, we're not playing a game here. We're dealing with the God who will one day bring us to judgment. And so, as those who've been forgiven, brought to know God in Christ, our calling is to learn to control our own bodies in a way that is holy and honorable. We'll spend some time looking at more detail of that uh, in weeks to come, but we're just establishing the principle today. We have a calling from God not to continue in impurity, to live a holy life. Second, we have a battle uh, to fight. Uh, Paul, and I'd love you just to go and reflect and meditate upon uh, Romans, um, particularly chapters 5. Uh, well, in fact, I read the whole thing, but 5 to 8 particularly is where Paul begins to apply the gospel of grace and the ethical outworkings. Again, he appeals to us, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. And not because you're under law, And you keep going back and saying, I must obey the Ten Commandments. I must obey the Ten Commandments. But because you're under grace, because Jesus has loved you and welcomed you and is changing you and you know him. And so you want to live in his grace and for his glory and by his strength begin to live that new life. And yet as you commit yourself to that, what will you find? You will find that it is a battle and a battle where often you lose. To come to the peace of God is to begin a battle. That seems contradictory, doesn't it? Uh, But the reality is when we stop being slaves of sin, we become slaves of God. Uh, When we make peace with God, well, then we go to war with our sinful flesh that rages within us and will continue to do so until our dying day. And because we are sinful creatures, because we are not yet made perfect, Paul's Christian testimony will be ours. What I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do, he says. I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. Uh, No, what uh, what I do is not the good I want to do, no, the evil I do not want to do this. 
I keep on doing. It's not the whole story of our Christian pilgrimage, but it is a significant and abiding part. The danger is we make peace with it and say, well, I don't do what I want to do. I'm just a sinner. I'll just give in. Well, Paul says, shall we sin that grace may abound? No, I tell you, he says. And why? Because we're not under law. We're under the grace of Jesus. We have the Holy Spirit within us. And so we enter this daily battle for sexual purity, just as we do for obedience in every other areas of our lives. And it's not easy. And we long to do what is right before the Lord. And yet often we will fall and fail. Because we are not perfect. We are not yet uh, living in the spiritual bodies that we will one day inhabit. So what shall we do? Who will teach us the grace of God that brings salvation? Paul says elsewhere, it's really just a summary of what he says uh, in Romans uh, 5 to 8 here, but it's a bit quicker, and I knew I wouldn't have much time uh, by this stage. But notice Paul's logic. The grace of God that brings salvation teaches us. God's grace is our teacher. Read the law of God. Read the word of God, of course. This is how we know the mind of God. But how will we live God's way? Not by stealing ourselves to be obedient, but by opening ourselves and humbling ourselves and being renewed by the endless grace of God that always meets us in the mess we are today because of the choices we made this morning and yesterday. Not where we should have been if we'd made different choices. God's grace always meets us today. And God's grace will teach us today to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and teach us to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age. And how does God's grace do that? Well, it casts our minds forward because the day is coming when the Jesus who has forgiven us, we will see him. And as we long for that day when we will look him in the eye, so he gives us grace to live lives now that will please him. And we then, at the same time, not possible with the head, but in the the eyes of the heart, we look in the opposite direction. We look back at the cross. We look at the one who loved us and redeemed us, and redeemed us for the purpose that we would belong to him. He didn't redeem us to give us a get-out-of-hell-free card and then tell us to go on our way. He redeemed us that we might fully belong to him, that our sexual desires would be channeled into his service was one of the reasons that he went to the cross for you, to give us uh, a people who now belong to him and eagerness to do uh, what is good. And finally, when we fall in this area, uh, I I invite you uh, to go and read uh, 1 John 1 and 2. There are three destructive lies uh, that John confronts there, uh, and you'll hear these lies often, uh, and your own heart will tell them to you. Uh, Sin doesn't affect my relationship to God is the first lie. If we claim to have fellowship, yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. Uh, Sin is other people's problem. I think we've covered that one. Uh, That's another excuse we have. If we claim to be without sin, that is, if we ourselves claim to be without sin, well, again, we've deceived only ourselves. And here is the challenge and the crisis of the modern church. Sin can be redefined as we see fit Uh, to suit our culture and instincts. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word, which defines what sin is, has no place in our lives. Those are the missteps. Sin doesn't matter. Other people's sin matters. 
Let me just redefine what sin is so that suddenly I'm off the hook. All very attractive, all destined to failure. So what should we do when we fall? We will fall. What shall we do when we do it? We'll know this, that Jesus' death alone can save us. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin, all sin, including that sin that only you know about, and not even your spouse knows about, that sexual sin that shames you. Jesus' blood purifies you from that one too. We confess our sins, and he forgives our sins every time. For the 1,432,000th time, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. That promise always holds and never fails. And then thirdly and finally, we have a gospel to proclaim. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin, John says. But if anybody does, and he's just said that's all of us, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice. He turn us aside God's anger against us for our sins. And not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. God's word doesn't need redefining. It just needs proclaiming. Because there is grace sufficient for me and you and everyone in Hartford and to the ends of the whole world. Let's be confident, humbly, repentantly confident and joyfully aware that this is God's good news for our depraved and lost culture and for we depraved and lost sinners. So sexual sin is real, needs condemning. Jesus' grace is greater and forgiving. And when we receive his grace, it is transforming. We have a calling from God, a battle to fight, a teacher, grace to train us, and a remedy when we fall. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, again, uh, we've looked at many scriptures, uh, dealt with uh, complicated issues, and yet in the end it is simple. We are sinners, and you are gracious. And so please would you so work in us that we might confess our sins. Cry out to you from our hearts, Lord Jesus, have mercy upon me, the sinner. And so grant that we might hear, and then having heard speak those words, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. Amen.